Hello everybody and welcome back to VM, a podcast where I divulge into all of my honest, raw, true life stories um, and where I get to explore some new stories for the month of October. So I thought I would start a little bit early in September. Today is... September 29th and I am a little bit sick. (laughs) My nose is stuff so I apologize for that. But today I wanted to do something new that I haven't done before and I want to kind of talk about a true crime story. So these are real stories and I wanted to do them all throughout the month of October. To call it True Crime October. So, welcome to today's True Crime October podcast, episode one. To start the month of October and the podcast True Crime October, a little series in the podcast, I kind of want to start it with a true crime story that I found um I just scroll through YouTube sometimes and this story popped up and for some reason I think about the story a lot because I feel like any of us could fall into this sort of trap especially if anybody is second generation from any other country if they're a second generation kid first generation kid of immigrant parents I just it it rang true especially coming from such a strict background um, considering my family was um, not as lenient (laughs) as other families and I I kind of thought about this story a lot and I feel like more people should know about this story if they don't already so the first story for the true crime October which is actually starting in September just a little bit early is the story of Jennifer Pan so Jennifer Pan was born on June 17, 1986, and she's a Canadian woman of Chinese slash Vietnamese ancestry, and she was brought up by both of her parents, um, and her parents, of course, came from Vietnam. Her mother, uh, Bic Ha, and her father, Hugh Han Pan were Sino-Vietnamese immigrants to Canada. Um, and Han, her father, had been born and educated in Vietnam, moving to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Bic also immigrated as a refugee. So both of her parents were refugees. They came to Canada. They got married in Toronto and lived in Scarborough. Um, they had two children. There was Jennifer, born 1986, and she had also a brother, born 1989. 
So Jennifer was the older sister, um, daughter of two immigrants. And the Pans found work at an auto parts manufacturer in Ontario. Um, Her dad worked as a tool and die maker, while Big made car parts. Um, So as you could tell, these are not very um, high-end jobs. Um, Her parents worked, I would say, kind of low-end jobs, kind of skill, a lot of labor versus skill jobs. Um, However, the couple, they worked really hard for their money um, just to ensure that their children had everything they could ever need and ever missed out on. And that is something that is very common with immigrant families. I mean, I can speak of my own family. Um, Both of my parents are immigrants. And when they came in, they worked also in factories, actually in a newspaper manufacturing factory and then another one for a magazine, I believe for Vogue and Glamour. And so they never really got to have those white collar jobs. Um, And so mine and Jennifer's backgrounds are very similar in a lot of ways. And so that's technically kind of the same upbringing you would find in most immigrant children. Now, Han and Vic, they were very thrifty. And so by 2004, they were financially stable enough to purchase a quote-unquote large house. So they had a two-guard garage on a residential street in Markham, and that's a city in the greater Toronto area, and it's um, an area with a large Asian population. And because they came into that a lot of money, with working hard, they saved up, uh, they had very expensive cars along with that. So Vic drove a Lexus and Han drove a Mercedes and they had about mm, roughly $200,000 in savings, which is a lot of money for two immigrants that worked their way up um, to have that a lot of money. And that's going to be a little bit important later on. money and with the money of course especially with the background uh, that Jennifer's parents had they had set many goals for their children and had extremely high expectations of them so Jennifer the daughter was made to take piano lessons at the age of four and she also took up figure skating classes where she trained most days during the week and she really had high hopes in figure skating. I mean, she wanted to become an Olympic figure skating champion. Um, unfortunately, she tore a ligament in her knee that prevented her from being able to pursue that career. But this was something that she really wanted so bad was to be in the Olympics. But Jennifer also attended a Catholic secondary school where she played the flute in the school band. And according to her high school friend, she was seen as the her dad was seen as the classic tiger dad 
and her mother was as as his reluctant accomplice. So even her friends in high school knew that her parents were very strict. And the pans picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and monitor her extracurricular activities very closely. So not only did they set high expectations for her, they really held her accountable to follow through with those. And they never permitted her to date boys while attending high school or to attend high school dances or proms out of fear that these activities would distract her from her academic commitments. So she wasn't even allowed to attend any parties during her time and um, her parents believed she was attending university. So at the age of 22, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, visited a friend's cottage, or gone on a vacation without her family. And so this was a very, very restrictive lifestyle for Jennifer. Um, And her friends reportedly regarded this upbringing, upbringing as greatly oppressive. And what's kind of interesting about this is that I had the same exact upbringing as Jennifer. I never attended a sleepover. <laughs> I could not go to any birthday parties of any of my friends. Couldn't hang out with them after school. I couldn't do any after school activities. I wasn't even allowed to do any sports or anything that was outside of school because my parents worked. So they didn't have the transportation, the time, or the money to be able to afford for me to do these kind of extracurricular activities. I did manage to go to an arts high school, so I did get to do some of those extracurricular activities like concerts and rehearsals later on, but it came with a lot of begging and trying to make my parents understand that this was a positive influence in my life. So I really do understand her stress that she had. I would, I remember <laughs> in graduating high school, I was the third in my class. And when I told my dad, the first thing he says is, why aren't you the first? <laughs> yes, you're the third, but why didn't you make it to the first? So I was always held to that standard of A is never good enough. Why does an A minus have to happen when I could strive for an A plus? So everything that she went through, not exactly, obviously I'm not in, was never in her shoes to know exactly what she went through, but her upbringing is very similar to mine's. Um, And at the time, I can definitely remember hating my parents. I did not like the fact that I was so restricted and I did have some times where I did try to rebel, but for the most part, I was very scared of the repercussions. So despite her parents' high expectations, um, and that Jennifer had received good grades in lower school, throughout her high school, Her grades were somewhat average, in like the 70% range, except for music. Multiple times, she forged report cards using false templates to show her parents that she had received straight A's when she had not. When Jennifer failed calculus class in her senior year of high school, one of her top universities, Ryerson University, 
rescinded her early admission. And so being brought up with such high expectations and being so meticulously observed and having already forged in the past her report cards just to police her parents, she knew she could not tell them of this, um, of this failure. So she couldn't bear to be perceived at all as a failure in the in their eyes of the parents. So she began to lie to those she knew, including her parents, and pretended that she was attending university. So instead, she sat in cafes, taught as a piano instructor, and worked in a restaurant to earn money. So she was doing all of this to try to fool her parents into thinking that she was attending university. And in order to maintain the charade, Jennifer told her parents that she had won scholarships, later falsely claiming that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. She even went to the extent of purchasing secondhand textbooks and watching videos related to pharmacology in order to create notebooks full of purported class notes that she could show her parents. Jennifer also requested permission from her parents to stay near the campus with a friend throughout the week. So she's doing all of this to try to fool her parents into thinking that she was this star child, this straight A student, this scholar, this academic success achievement that she had, but she really couldn't prove it. At the end of the day, it was all a facade. And in reality, instead of being on campus, instead of taking university classes, she was actually staying with her boyfriend, Daniel Chi Kwong Wong, whom she had met in high school. And Daniel was mixed Chinese and Filipino ancestry, sorry, and resided in Ajax and worked at a Boston pizza restaurant. Wong once a student at Mary Ward transferred to Cardinal Carter Academy in North York, Toronto due to low grades and later studied at York University. He was also an active marijuana dealer. So during this whole time that she was pulling all of this over her parents, you know, trying to make this facade of a perfect university student. She was actually staying with her boyfriend, who was also a drug dealer. And while pretending to complete her degree at the University of Toronto, Pan also told her parents that she had started working as a volunteer at the hospital for sick children. So this is a lot of lies, a lot of intricate lies that really differs from the way I was brought up. I did not rebel to this extent where I would fool my parents' report cards. I remember once feeling so guilty for trying to make an F look into an A. (laughs) Um, Because my conscience stopped me every time. I didn't want to truly be the disappointment in my parents' eyes. No No matter how low I could go, I could never really fool them and myself into believing I could 
I could deceive someone. For me, that was like the ultimate, the ultimate failure is to stoop that low, to make them believe a truth that wasn't true. So that's, that's where it starts to change a little bit for me. So, of course, while all of this was going on, her parents soon became suspicious when they realized, after telling her parents that she started working as a volunteer at the hospital, that she did not have a hospital ID badge or uniform. On one occasion, her mom had actually followed Jennifer to work and quickly discovered her deception. In a state of shock, her father wanted to throw Jennifer out of the house, but her mother had persuaded him to allow her to stay. As she had not completed high school due to failing calculus, she eventually began working to finish high school completely and was later encouraged by her parents to apply to university. She was, however, forbidden to contact Wong or to go anywhere except to her piano teaching job. Nevertheless, she and Wong spoke during this time period. And so what's very interesting about this reproach of tiger parenting is that even though her parents were very so strict to, you know, her dad wanted to kick her out. I, I mean, I think that's super, super, super like last resort that you would do. I mean, even though they really did want to discipline her that way, they still allowed her to stay with them. They still gave her a choice to continue to be with them. Of course, under the condition that she would not see Daniel. Now one would analyze and think a tiger parent would just kick their daughter out, no excuses, and not allow that anymore. But the fact that her parents showed some, some sadness, some, I guess, guilt to allow her to stay again, some love, I would say, it makes me believe that the parents weren't doing this in spite of all that she is. I think they were trying to do this to help her. And they really, truly only knew how to love her in that way. And the fact that she couldn't see that at the time is is very normal, but I feel like I would understand the love that her parents are trying to show her at this, especially at this point, when they discover that everything was a lie. So by the time that Jennifer was 24, Wong had grown weary of trying to pursue a relationship with her. As Jennifer was so daunted and restricted by her parents that she lived at home and only met him in secret, Wong began to date another young woman whom he soon fell in love with. Jennifer quickly invented a new story and told Wong that a man had entered her house, showing what appeared to be a police badge. She then told him that several men had rushed in and gang-raped her. After this, she insisted that a bullet was mailed to her, 
telling Wong that it was sent from his new girlfriend. And what's interesting about this part is that when I was watching the video on YouTube, uh, it didn't really mention this part. The criminal investigator had talked about Wong as, you know, the love interest of Jennifer and how they had a relationship together and how that relationship came to be something more important in the eyes of Jennifer than a relationship with her parents. Um, we didn't get context of this little part in the video. So what transpires next makes a lot of sense with knowing that there was a possibility that Jennifer could have been easily jealous or envious of the relationship that Wong had with this other woman and how she tried to not only deceive her parents but as well her love interest to try to keep control of her life. In spring 2010, Jennifer was in contact with an Andrew Montemayor, a high school friend who, she claims, had boasted in their high school years about robbing people at Ninth Point. An assertion, assertion denied by Montemayor. Montemayor introduced her to Ricardo Duncan, a goth kid whom Pan allegedly gave $1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot at his workplace. So now we're getting into the true crime aspect of this story, the murder. And while this kind of explains of how she goes about it, we really need a, a motive for why she would want to commit a murder. Because Jan, Jennifer, sorry, Jennifer Pan had gone through years of what they would call quote-unquote tiger parenting and having to isolate herself, having to be scrutinized and look under a microscope for her entire life and to then be isolated from the love of her life, to then discover that the love of her life, the love of her life has met another woman, all of these factors can lead us to suspect that Jennifer had a reason to get rid of her parents. Because without her parents, she could then see Daniel. She could then do all the things that she wants to do and not have to be the 24-year-old still living at home, not graduated, not accomplished, missing the love of her life, and unhappy and depressed. Without her parents, she could be free to do what she needs to do. And so this gave her a motive to seek out the murder of her parents. So she finds this goth kid, Ricardo, to give, to give $1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot at his workplace. Duncan says that she once gave him $200 for a night out, but that he returned it and that he rebuffed her when she asked him to kill her parents. 
Jennifer and Daniel were back in contact at this time, and according to the police, they came up with a plan to hire a professional hitman for $10,000 to kill her parents, calculating that she would then inherit $500,000. And ideally, Jennifer had possibly thought that she could inherit a lot, a large sum of money from her parents if she were to kill them, even though her parents, the amount of money they have accrued over the years wasn't even close to that amount of money. Daniel and Jennifer planned to move in together. So Daniel con- connected Jennifer with a man, Lanford Roy Crawford. He was a Jamaican-born and what they called Hoboy hitman. And he gave her a SIM card and an iPhone so that she could contact Crawford without using her usual cell phone. Crawford contacted another man named Eric Sean, quote unquote, Sniper Carty, who in turn contacted Montreal born David Milkenham. Crawford lived in Branton and Milkenham lived in Toronto, while Carty, who previously lived in Rexdale, Toronto, at the time did not have a fixed residence. The Crown prosecution stated that Milvganam was one of the hitmen. Cardi was later found responsible for an unrelated murder and journalist Grimaldi stated that Cardi was a repeat violent offender. So all of the people that Jennifer was in contact with were dangerous men, were dangerous people that had the capabilities and the financial motivation to kill. And so, focusing on the night of the murder, the murder took place at the Pan House in Unionville neighborhood in Markham, Ontario. On November 8th, 2010, Jennifer unlocked the front door of the family home when she went to bed. She actually went ahead and signaled the hitman with a flicker of her light in her bedroom. Shortly afterwards, Milvganam and two other people entered the home through the unlocked front door, all carrying guns. In the court testimony, the Crown did not establish the identity of the other two hitmen. Daniel and Crawford were at work. Cardi stated that he was the driver for those who broke into the house and that he selected them and was involved in plotting the attack. He did not state that he was one of the three or that he directly attacked others. Grimaldi stated that the identity of the trigger person remains unknown. After demanding all the money in the house and ransacking the main bedroom, the three men took Vic and Han, Jennifer's father and mother to the basement where they shot them multiple times. Bick, Jennifer's mother, was killed, but Han would survive his wounds. The three men then took all the cash that was in the house, including $2,000, from Jennifer and left. Jennifer claimed that they tied her up, but that she managed to free her hands and dial 911. Han, Jennifer's dad, was treated at Markham Stuffville Hospital before being moved to a trauma unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto by aircraft. 
So that's a lot to uncover. That the murder took place around a relatively short amount of time. And that Jennifer had been quote-unquote tied up, but still able to make a 911 call. And while all of these details are very incriminating for the men that came into the house, how do the investigators find Jennifer guilty of this murder? What information did they have at the time of the investigation that could lead and point fingers to Jennifer instead of other people? After the murder, Jennifer underwent her first interview with the police. At this point in time, she was not considered a suspect. She was just considered a witness. Jennifer was arrested on November 22, 2010, during her third interview at the Markham Police Station. So between her first and her third interview, the police had started growing suspicious of Jennifer and pinned her as a suspect of her parents' murder. During that interview, Jennifer admitted in the third interview that she hired killers but stated that she hired them to kill her. The interrogating police officer, William Bill Gultz, falsely told Jennifer that he had computer software that could analyze untruths in statements and that there were satellites that used infrared technology to analyze movements in buildings. In Canada, police are are legally allowed to lie to those that they are interrogating in regard to the evidence in the trial, as well as in regard to the strategies they are using. Guts had used the read technique to ensnare Jennifer. All the other suspects were arrested on later days than April 14, 2011 through May 4, 2011. And those suspects included Milfganem, Cardi, Wong, and Crawford. watching the video on YouTube about this case, what I found most striking about the footage with Jennifer during her investigation was how silent, I would say not calm, but just very, she was being very methodical with the way she was acting, with the way she was reacting and all of her emotions. You could tell she was scared. But when it comes to an investigation of the murder of your parents, or well, her mother, technically, because her father did survive, the frightness or the the fear that she has should 
dissipate over the course of the investigation because if she was truly not a suspect, she would understand that this investigation is going to help find the people who are to be, you know, the prime suspects or the people at fault for this crime. She would just be a victim, but her fear got the better of her, and so with every interview, she progressively got worse with her anxiety and overthinking and overreactions and sometimes underreactions. So she wasn't playing the victim card very well, which led to police being able to pin her down as one of the prime suspects. So let's get to the trial. The trial of Jennifer and her accomplices began on March 19, 2014 in Newmarket and continued for 10 months. They all pleaded not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. At the trial, York Regional Police evidence included exhaustive tracking of the mobile device movements and text message traffic including over 100 messages sent between Pan and Wong in the six hours prior to the killing. Further evidence centered around the atypical nature of the break-in, robbery, shootings, and irregularities in Pan's testimony. Jennifer's obsession with Wong, her lack of true emotion and a confession regarding the attack, and recognition of the trauma she underwent were also detailed. A major irregularity was that Jennifer was not assaulted, blindfolded, taken to the basement, nor shot, leaving behind an eyewitness to the attack. Evidence from Han, Jennifer's father, differed greatly from Jennifer's version, which also undermined her credibility, as did her inability to recreate the conditions of her 911 call when her hands were bound behind her. Given that the police were the ones who actually cut the shoelace to release her. The trial included over 200 exhibits, over 50 witnesses testified at the trial. Jennifer, Pan, Daniel, Wong, Milvganam, and Crawford were all convicted on December 13, 2014, and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Originally, Cardi was tried with the other perpetrators, but Cardi's lawyer fell ill, so around the summer of 2014, his case was declared a mistrial. In December 2015, Cardi received an 18-year sentence after pleading guilty to conspiring to commit murder. He was to be eligible for parole after nine years. According to Cardi, he did not wish to subject Han Pan to another criminal trial. So Jennifer Pan was sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years for the murder of her mother, an attempted murder of her father. Pan's father and brother requested a court order that banned Jennifer Pan from contacting members of her surviving family. Despite the objections of the defense lawyers, the judge filed the order. Jennifer is also barred from contacting Wong. As of 2016, Pan was serving her sentence at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. 
Daniel Wong, previously held in Lindsay, Ontario, was at Collins Bay Institution in Kingston, Ontario. So let's talk about the media reaction. According to the South China Morning Post, the case sent shockwaves across Canada and the Asian diaspora. And an editorial in the Northwest Asian Weekly suggested consideration of the idea of recognizing the mental and physiological symptoms that parenting may have gone too far in the Pan household. A story by Karen Cahoe in Toronto Life magazine brought the story to widespread attention by framing it an instance of tired parenting gone tragically wrong. And in 2016, journalist Jeremy Grimaldi published a true crime book about Pan called A Daughter's Deadly Deception, The Jennifer Pan Story. So what happens after all of this? Jennifer's mother, Bic Hapan's funeral was held on November 15, 2010 and took place at the Ogden Chapel in Scarborough. Jennifer had actually attended the funeral, but what reporters and investigators found was that she was completely unemotionally and detached from the funeral. 